I think we should just go down the bullets in order, John. Yeah, no, but I, I that's why I'm, I'm, I'm proposing a change. I'd like to move that the uh, discussion of the motion for the change is object only consideration. Two no, 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 no. <laughs> All right, serpentine. Uh, yes. Okay. So let's move. One. So this two, um, three. <laughs> Yay! That's not saying in the episode, but I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, <laughs> that's a cold open. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50th episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 3rd of February 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we're 50. That, that's, that's fantastic, isn't it? Um, it's kind of unbelievable. What do you think, guys? Uh, I think it's very good that we're 50. I think it's less good that I don't know what date it is. So yes, we are 50. It has been a wild ride. And as we do the last episode of Octothorpe, I just want to tell all our listeners that we really appreciate you being here with us. We've like actually just been planning the next three, John. (laughs) (laughs) John, what are you about to say that means there will be no more Octothorpes ever? (laughs) I mean, is it that you're not going to edit anymore? Because that would be an end to Octothorpe. (laughs) No, we'll just have we'll just have Liz edit it. I'll just be like, I'll throw the files over to Liz and say, Liz, can you do a quick edit? And then four months later, I'll go, how's that edit coming along, Liz? <laughs> oh, 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 shots fired. Shots very much fired. Uh, I, I mean, I did not intend to start this argument, which will end the podcast. But uh, <laughs> by Jove, I appear to have done it. We had some letters of comment, and first up was Bill Burns sending us an email entitled, What is a fanzine? And he went into some details on how he and Nick Ferry originated that definition of fanzine. It was first published in the Incomplete Register for the 2018 Van Awards. Bill has kind of excerpted the summary of the chain of emails, but I, I, I don't want to put it in the show notes just in case because I kind of feel like it would go quite well in one of Nick's fanzines or maybe even a fanzine by Bill. Uh, so, but it's very good. And uh, thank you for writing in, Bill. It was very interesting. Yeah, it's, it, even if you disagree with people, it's nice to see kind of their reasoning and how they get to that position. Well, it's the, the, um, it's the fan nature, isn't it, to disagree in entertaining ways? Well, we try to hold that on Octothorpe, don't we, guys? We do. <laughs> we also got a email from Chris Garcia, and he says, John has a tedious NPC hat. It would go very well with my me and my thousands of friends won a Hugo in 2019 sash. And yes, it would, Chris. If you need that decorating for you, I guarantee you that I will misuse the Hugo Awards logo and get a cease and desist and promise never to do it again and do it almost exactly the same way, but slightly differently. And there up, tie up the MPC for years. Sorry, guys. Chris, if you do have that sash, please send us a photo. And then he talked a little bit about um, New Year's resolutions. He doesn't commit himself to resolutions just because his calendar is obsoleted. Uh, most years he just tries to do the same thing watch more wrestling put out a few issues of various scenes and record a bunch of podcasts when you're as vague as he is it's hard not to meet your goal that is a good philosophy 
So Peter Sullivan said, you're all fluent enough in management speak to know that New Year's resolutions that I'd like to achieve but don't get too fussed if I don't have to be referred to these days as, quote, stretch goals, end quote. And I just wanted to say that I can't do that because I have stretch goals, which involve me standing up every hour and stretching. (laughs) Is this because your Apple Watch instructs you to do that? Pretty sure John also has stretch goals. Liz, do you have stretch goals? No, I find that I naturally get out of my chair and stretch every hour when I need another cup of coffee. So We have a rule in our house that Espana is not allowed to bring me coffee because otherwise I would never get out of my chair and stretch. And, and that is, I think, a good rule. It is a, what I would call a life hack. Yeah, no, no, we have a rule in our house, which is that Stephen is going to bring me a coffee halfway through this podcast. Otherwise, I'm going to fall asleep in the second half of the podcast. <laughs> I mean, you know, different strokes uh, for different folks. Let's try it out and see if the listeners notice. (laughs) (laughs) Heard the clipping in my earphones. So that that is going to be, sorry, listeners, uh, if that doesn't normalise down. uh, That was a loud laugh. Um, The um, Dave Coxon writes in to ask us, well, he asks us two questions. Firstly, he asks whether he can follow us on goodreads and so yes anyone who'd like to can follow us on goodreads um and i've put links in the show notes and alison and i are also uh, on letterboxd board game geek and untapped if you'd like to see what we're watching drinking and playing and so yeah feel free to follow us on there dave also asks us probably more importantly what style of beer and maybe even sub style of beer you'd go for as a threesome which will require us to agree on something which might be tricky um milk stout i am partial to a milk stout oh i do like a good milk stout actually there we go hey octothorpe podcast corner Octothorpe Podcast Corner, which is a feature I just invented, is basically, I quite like Alison telling us about Hugo Girl uh, last week, last fortnight on the podcast. And so I thought I would tell you about what I've been listening to over the past couple of weeks, which is the Caribbean SF Podcast, a podcast about all things science fiction, fantasy, horror and folklore coming from the Caribbean. Um it's just it's just a really well done, really interesting podcast. Uh, it's almost entirely uh, interviews with different authors and creators from the Caribbean. Um, a couple of episodes I will recommend is I listened to the one with Karen Lord. Um, and they talk about she wrote a story called The Plague Doctors before the current pandemic came out, but which does have a lot of resonances with the current pandemic. And so that was a really interesting thing to listen to. Um, there's also an interview with an author called Brandon O'Brien, and it is about his uh, poetry chapbook, Can You Sign My Tentacle, which is uh, about hip hop and the Thulu mythos, which are two things that I did not imagine would make for like a good topic for poetry, but it's really good. And he kind of gets into how like he's using this kind of the hip hop um, kind of as a vehicle to, you know, interrogate the Lovecraft mythos. It's interesting. It's well produced. It's about topics in science fiction that I am not completely aware of. And so it's given me some good book recommendations as well. So I, I recommend giving it a listen. Yeah, I was hoping to get a chance to listen to that before this weekend, but... I picked the Brandon O'Brien one. It's really interesting. And I then went and bought his poetry chapbook. So which is like two quid on Amazon. Yeah, so, so, so e-books have been great for poetry chapbooks because the poets weren't getting any money when Faber and Faber sold you their chapbook for 12 
Um, but you you were thinking that twelve ninety nine was a bit too much for a chapbook, but two pounds is fine. There we are. I will take. I thought I'd already deleted that up, but I might be right. There we are. I found it. Good. Right. Neo. Oh, but they have an interview with Malka Older, and I like Malka Older, and I've never heard of Brandon O'Brien, but I do like Cthulhu's. So. Yeah, I would recommend you listen to it. Tentacles, like tentacles, like a bit of tentacle. <laughs> oi, and indeed, oi. Thank you, Liz. I will listen to the episode with Brandon O'Brien because it mentions Cthulhu's, and I like Cthulhu's. We have Convention Corner. Conventions have been postponed. So Redemption has been postponed by a year. It was going to be um, it was going to be this month, as you're listening to this podcast, listeners, but it has been postponed to February in 2023. And Flu Pangloss has been postponed to October 2022. I am a little bit worried that the big COVID numbers we've seen in winter the last couple of years might also recur uh, in time to ruin Redemption next year. But it is true that we only have two years of data, and so uh, it's very difficult to make a pattern. We can just about draw a line, um, but a line of best fit or a model is not yet possible, and so maybe it will be fine. And Corfly Pangloss is is postponed to October, which Alison thinks is sensible. Yeah, no, I, I have the exact opposite argument, which is that Corfly, as we remember, is the only science fiction convention that managed not to miss a year due to the pandemic, because it it just managed to slip a core flu in immediately before the pandemic for people who weren't worried. They, they got to go to College Station in Texas. And then it slipped in another one last October, because it turns out you can have conventions in that period between kind of September and November. And I went to three last year plus of course discon happened in december and i'm hoping that the same thing will happen this year so i'd say move to the autumn because i think it's got a better bet for working for you than moving a year i've been looking at ansible and ansible is full of stories of people delaying their convention either to 2023 or to later in 2022 i think the saddest story on the ansible list is chillicon which was due to be 16th to 8th 19th April 2020, was postponed first to August 2020, then to January 2021, then to March 2022, and has now been postponed again. The last we've heard of PicoCon is that they're still planning to run in person in early March 2022. ICSF, which is the organisation that holds PicoCon, are aiming for an in-person convention on the 5th of March their argument is that they might as well plan for in-person because it's much easier to switch from in-person to online at the last minute than the reverse, which is true. And also they do everything at the last minute anyway. So, you know. I worry slightly that if we say, well, October is probably going to be better than February, which it probably is, but I think we honestly don't know. The problem is that then everyone will try and postpone themselves into October or November and we'll end up with this kind of crunch around the autumn. So I can see why conventions are like, okay, we're just going to postpone for a year because that means we can keep our regular weekend, which is a time, you know, we know our regular attendees don't have a huge number of clashes when our staff have time to work on it in the preceding few months, that kind of thing. So I think it is in some ways a lot easier to say, okay, we're going to bump it by a year than bump it by six months. And I think bumping to the pre-Christmas week for Worldcon probably did have knock-on effects other than the fact that they end up, unfortunately, in right in the middle of another COVID wave. But I bet there were people who traditionally go to Worldcons 
who could not attend just because of the timing. I think you're probably right there, Liz. I mean, especially with a small con as well, where you may have like a limited pool of, of staff. If someone say, actually, October is no good for me because that's the start of the academic year or something like that, then you could have a big, a big gap in your staffing. You may well be thinking, Pop Pickers, how all this pertains to the Easter con. And I think we're going to pick that up next time we record and pontificate about the Easter con a lot at that point and maybe future Easter cons because there's lots of stuff coming out that we're learning about what people are thinking about going to in-person conventions. The Fan Awards are not moving. They're going to be on March 20th and they're going to Zoom. So even though Corflu has moved, that's going to be a Zoom event. And when we have the link, we will, I don't know if we will let you know. I think probably it's one of these things where if you know, you know. And if you don't, ask one of us. Don't ask me because I, I won't know. Ask John or Alison. If you ask Liz, Liz will text us and we will answer. <laughs> yeah, so it'll work just indirectly. <laughs> Sounds good. I hope the Zoom event will be at a time that's appropriate for UK people as well as West Coast Americans because it's very easy for things that are timed for the West Coast to not, not suit UK people very well, being as they're in the middle of the night. And, and vice versa. I want to talk a bit about the terrible decision of the Fan Award administrators to scrap Best Website because I think the TAF free ebooks page, which we will put, we will link to, is well worth everyone's time to go and have a look at. I have spent some of this week reading um, True Rat, which is one of the books on there, and there's all sorts of cool and interesting stuff. If you have any interest about what fans have been writing about over the last hundred years or so. Um, there's a lot of stuff on there and a lot of it is very good and very funny and they're all free um, donations to TAF encouraged but it should win best website except apparently the fan awards are scrap best website so boo bring back best website so I can vote for the TAF ebooks page We're going to talk a little bit about self-promotion today. This is something that has become very common in the Hugo Award electorate, people putting up eligibility posts and talking about kind of what they've done that's eligible and kind of not not quite plugging their work, but making people aware of their work, um, depending on. I, I think there are probably people who think people are plugging, um, but there's a spectrum of opinion, as we'll get into. And one of the things that that does is potentially shake up the odd category where the same things tend to win quite a bit and that kind of gets to the difference between awarding the objectively best thing in a field versus the thing that has caught the imagination at the moment in time so Alison do you want to start on self-promotion and then we can kind of spin off your robust opinions well I'm Alison Scott and here's a list of everything I've done this year that's eligible for the Hugo Awards oh um I think I'm eligible in seven categories Seven? Good Lord. No, obviously not. I'm eligible for best novel. Are you? Yeah, well, I contain at least 100,000 words, and I am fictional. I have written more than 40,000. Are you fictional? That would explain a lot. So I wanted to start here by kind of expressing the traditional British view on self-promotion. And the reason I'm doing it as the traditional British view is that I've, I've kind of moved a little way from this. So this is where I would have been about 10 years ago. Oh, what, what you mean? You mean there's an award that I might? No, I don't have anything to say about that. Um, 
no it would be it would be mad because obviously there are all these many better things than than me that have been nominated in this face or that are eligible and you should go and vote for them and um and what you vote well it's very kind of you but really I don't I don't think you should and and, and I certainly wouldn't be voting for myself and oh oh we oh we've Oh, we've won. That's that's very, oh, that's so very kind. It never occurred to me that we might have won this. So, so you know, you don't self-promote. You don't admit, even if pressed, that you think what you do is good and is worthy of an award. And if people nevertheless say it's worthy of an award, you kind of deny it wholeheartedly. And you certainly don't vote for yourself and you don't encourage anyone else to vote for you. And you dampen down any tendencies that you see amongst your intimates that they might be running a campaign for you. That feels like a very traditional British attitude. That's where I was 10 years ago. Um, that's probably not one I have come across. Like, I think that is more like, I, I think the attitude I have come across is slightly more towards, well, I'm not going to go out and tell everyone to vote for it. But if you ask me, I'll say, yeah, I think I did a, a good thing. And if you want to vote for it, that's good kind of attitude. Oh, no. <laughs> when, when, when pressed... Yeah, when pressed. when pressed, I might admit, actually, I think this thing I did is all right, probably. And if you liked it, that's very nice. You know, that kind of. But that's kind of where I am now. So I wanted to go a bit further over to that, because definitely how I was brought up is very much in line with that. Is is And and I think the thing I wanted to say about it is that it's it's rooted in a world in which everyone knows who the good chaps are and what they've done. So it's a very it's a it's a model that comes from privilege because it it assumes that you can survey the field and have a good sense of all the stuff that is good out there which for the hugos and even to be honest for the fan awards is manifestly not true so we need a new model <clears throat> this ties into something i've thought for a while which is that i think that the distaste for self promotion comes with it a implicit opinion that things that have tended to win awards are things which are deserving of winning awards in that in the last kind of maybe sort sort of i would argue and i don't know maybe my 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 view of the history here is 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 deficient and i'm sure um you do will both chip in if that is true but i think i think self-promotion is getting more common um especially in the hugos but in general in the field and that has been happening maybe over the last 15 or 20 years particularly would that do you think that's a fair statement or do you think I'm off base there? I, I got into a row with John Scalzi about this. So Old Man's War, when was that, guys? Two thousand four, I think. Yeah, so that's nearly twenty years ago. And I think that was the point at which I was kind of like I got into a row with him because I was basically channeling Britain and he was like, No, 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 it's completely fine to say what's good and he was right and I was wrong. And so that's twenty years, nearly seventeen years. To, 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 to 2005, won, won the Hugo in 2006. I was a year out. So, so about 15 or 20 years. Excellent. And so I think, I, think, I think I can see why people have this distaste for self-promotion because what it does is it means that the people with the loudest voices have the most power in controlling the conversation. And that is not always a good thing. Having said that, prior to self-promotion, I think what was mostly affecting the conversation and, and, and kind of where the power was vested was to a large extent gender and ethnicity in that a lot of the hugo winners before kind of 2000 are predominantly white males and people who are 
privileged enough to have been able to be on the ballot before because it means that if you don't have the ability to self-promote the only way of coming to the attention of the electorate is to win the hugo and what that means is that people who have already won hugos are much more likely to win more hugos than people who haven't and so i think self-promotion is a good way of trying to dismantle that power structure of kind of what has gone before and bring in a new power structure now that power structure also has privilege in it it just has different privileges in it and i'm not saying it's necessarily perfect but i do think that it does a better job of surfacing diverse voices than the old paradigm did and i think it is not a coincidence that in the last certainly in the last five years but i think starting about 15 years ago you did start to see more and more diverse works win hugos and that's part of why we had the reaction in 2015 of the sad puppy uh, and that whole fracas was because that was beginning to really gain steam and begin to anger the people who had had that power before. I do think, in general, I am a fan of the way that self-promotion has opened the field up a bit. Now, I am very British listeners, so I don't self-promote. I think we might be talking about two separate things here, which is I see self-promotion as promoting your own works is one thing, but promote, and self-promotion as promoting your own works specifically for awards is a separate thing. Every author now has to promote their own works. It is kind of the expected thing. I think the new authors will have Twitter feeds, they will guest on podcasts and so on. So I don't think I'm so much talking about that as a specific thing of saying, this is what I wrote this year and it is eligible for a Hugo in Best Novel. I post Octothorpe to eFanzines, Facebook, Twitter, File770, two Discords, and I have a reminder every two weeks to do that. And I think that is probably self-promotion in the sense that I think I want people to know that I'm doing a podcast and if they would like to listen to it, they can. So when I say I don't self-promote, I very much mean in the sense of I don't say I'm eligible for a Hugo Award because that's not my jam, but I do tell people I do a podcast. So I think the one you said about authors, I'm completely like, yeah, authors should talk about their books. Grand. Uh, the thing I think I was talking about more is the awards side. I'm going to follow on with that. I mean, it's not, we're not really, the, the, the controversial thing isn't about saying, isn't about marketing, right? It's not about saying, oh, um, I have a podcast and I'm going to make try and make sure that wherever I am on the internet, I, I mention the fact that I have a podcast that people might like. If I think I'm in the sort of community that might enjoy what we do here, I'm going to try and tell them about the podcast. I don't think that's, that's not self, it is not in the same way of, you know, it's not like the author who, who, who stacks their books up in front of their space in the panel and whenever asked a question says, well, in my book X, I did Y. I don't, I th you know, you could go too far even in the marketing line. But in terms of eligibility for awards, I think that we're primarily saying, is it sensible when it comes to award time to promote? And there's a... Yeah, no, I just wanted to clarify what, what we were talking about. And then my my question is, I think you can say that, like, the timing of people becoming more open about their eligibility and more open to kind of promoting their own eligibility for awards probably does coincide with award uh, sets of nominees and finalists becoming more diverse. But... I'm not sure how much of that is actually kind of causative as opposed to just a correlation. I basically mellowed a lot and I'm like, okay, if you want to promote your Hugo eligibility, that's fine. But it almost never prompts me to actually vote for something because I'm going to vote to nominate for things that I have read and liked. It's more effective if I get told about something earlier on so I can go and seek it out and read it if it sounds interesting to me. If you say I did this thing and it's Hugo eligible, 
you know, probably that's not going to make much of an influence on what I actually nominate and vote for. There are ways to do this that are more objectionable and there are ways that are less objectionable. And the less objectionable ones may in fact be more effective, depending on what it is that you are telling people about. In general, the stuff I nominate for the Hugos is not stuff that I saw someone on Twitter say, oh, I am eligible because I did this thing. Because usually I am already aware that they did the thing. In some cases, it is useful. For instance, if you are a short story writer, it is actually quite useful to do an eligibility post where you're like, these ones are the novelettes, because that that is helpful. Uh, I do appreciate that. And even if you're not a big fan of self-promotion, that that's just numbers, folks. Numbers are grand. I like the general trend of people being more open to talking about what they have done regularly and often on their you know Twitter feeds or blogs or whatever on the grounds. And if I'm following you, it's probably because I'm interested in your work. So I think that is good to try and raise my awareness and remind me, oh, yeah, you did, you know, your book came out this week and maybe I'd like to go and pick it up or your book is out in paperback this week and maybe I'd like to go and check it out. But the specific eligibility posts, I just sort of, you know, usually drift over and don't pay much attention to. It's all very well saying, here's what's eligible, but you do have to be pushing it at open door to some extent. If you say, oh, actually, you know that night in the pub, where I ranted for 93 minutes without drawing breath. That's eligible for best dramatic presentation, that is. I feel like that's not necessarily the best use of an eligibility post. Not nominating your pub rants, Alison. I'm, I'm hurt now. People have nominated worse. Gollum. The other thing that's really useful is when you've got someone who writes a series and they're like, actually, not, not eligible this year because I've not written enough new words uh, since the last time I got nominated. And that is also quite useful. And again, like that, that gets back to Alison's point about pushing it an open door. Like, I'm not going to care whether or not your series is eligible this year unless I was already thinking of n- nominating it. But what I might do is realise you are writing a series and uh, end up reading it. But also that thing where you're like, oh, my series not eligible this year, but it, yeah, because I haven't written less words. That's a bit like going, oh, no, this chap was ahead of me at the bar. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> you're doing it in the hopes that you'll get surfed next. Yes. Getting back to what I said right at the beginning about the things that win being the most effective form of promotion, most of my, maybe not most of my favourite authors, but certainly like a chunk of the people I read in the field, I read because I saw them on a Hugo ballot and now I follow their work. So for instance, I got into N.K. Jemison's fiction because The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms was in the Hugo voter packet in 2011, maybe. And like, I'm sure that that's not true for everyone, but it's definitely, it's definitely true for me. And ditto uh Nedi Okorafor, like I discovered their work through the Hugo Votes packet, Martha Wells, you know, a lot of people. And so and so even with this uptick in self-promotion, that the most effective way of getting your name out there is still to be on the ballot. So two things, both from last episode. The first is that this is why the long list is such a good place to find interesting things, because the things that don't quite get on the ballot are often amazing. And and actually getting Getting to learn about those creators and what they're doing is often more exciting than seeing the same names that are actually on the ballot for the sixth time. So there's that. And the other thing is that we talked a little bit last time about the practice of fan winners recusing themselves for a year. And I think that's kind of very, very good for helping break that sense of I will vote for the things that I am that I am used to voting for. That sense of we can break up the category a bit just by just by spiking ourselves for a year to get people to think about the broader category is quite good in this regard. Yeah. That is, of course, a form of self-promotion. 
because the people, they're now magnanimous as, uh, in addition to all their other virtues. Indeed. One, and the other thing is that like, so I got two comments on that, which is firstly, I think my point about self-promotion being good because it helps to break up the established pool of, of people who make it onto the ballot. I think the people who match that by also recusing themselves when they have won or when they have run won like several, I, I think those go hand in hand. I think if you are self-promoting and then you just win the Hugo year after year after year and never say, actually, let's let someone else have a go, that is a sign that you are self-promoting for the wrong reasons. Because I think self-promotion is great because it makes everyone more aware of what's there. But I don't think it should be a tool for like dominating the field, if that makes sense. And so especially and i'm really sorry to uncanny i subscribe to uncanny i like them very much but especially uncanny i'm like you see the eligibility posts and it's like but you guys you clearly just want more rockets on your mantelpiece and and i find that understandable on a personal level but i don't think it's good for the field and so i i really do wish that that they would recuse themselves uh i'm gonna keep banging this drum apparently part of the other thing about self-promotion is um, and maybe this is unfair because because um fire do great work but it's also you get into self-promotion where fire ran a convention and then after that convention won best prosine and obviously the convention was also nominated for best related work and didn't win and so there's an element here where you're beginning to see people do things in different arenas and that kind of feedback into into promoting their works in kind of their more established categories i think and that's quite interesting um yeah, so I would say it would be it would be strange for Uncanny to recuse themselves at this point. I think because they didn't win. I think it makes more sense to recuse yourself just after you've won. I think it's weird to recuse yourself after you didn't win. <laughs> True that. That's fair. I mean, I will, I and I take I take your point on like fire having a convention, but I mean that's a a valid way to to show people your magazine is out there. And oh yeah, I might even say that we ran some conventions and possibly picked up more listeners for our podcast. Because we gave ourselves a live recording in the middle of it. So. Look, right. We did that because we didn't have any better ideas for program on a Sunday morning, Liz, and you know it. Um, also, I don't think we did put live recordings in either of our conventions, did we? Because we were busy running the conventions. I thought we did a live Octothorpe punctuation too. We did do a live Octothorpe punctuation too. Oh, dear. And we did do it on Sunday morning. You you summarized so effectively, you have forgotten forgotten you self-promoted yourself self-promoting bastards <laughs> i was also going to say that the hugo award eligibility spreadsheet as mentioned on this podcast before is also excellent for those questions of how many words are there in this story or is this particular magazine actually eligible under the you know arcane rules for determining what percentage of your income makes you a semi-prozine and so on and also for best series which i find to have very confusing eligibility rules. And here's a little plug for lady business, because Renee does a ton of work making all that happen. Indeed. So I'm quite happy to see that out there, because I know if someone else has gone and like calculated how many words were in these two new novels, and is this thing eligible in best series, um, and they share it with everyone else, and then I don't have to go and try and do word counts on things. This may be a sign that we should reform some of the Hugo rules. Oh, no, wait, that's a separate podcast, isn't it? I think I will just say I didn't mean to imply that I thought fire was like I, I, I think if your form of self-promotion is running a convention that brings a community together and highlights a bunch of great work and discussions of the genre like that that is a fantastic way to self-promote like 10 out of 10 I, I agree that uncanny shouldn't have recused themselves given that they didn't win but also I 
don't think fire should have recused themselves after winning either just because i think that would just mean it went immediately back to how it was for the last five years and so i think there is an interesting dynamic there which is I like the winners in Best Fanzine recusing themselves because Best Fanzine has been a vibrant category that has been swapping around a lot. But I'm glad Fire didn't recuse themselves because I think it will be good if Fire acts to break that category up a little bit. And so, like, my thoughts there are actually quite complicated. But I, I completely agree that recusing yourself when you don't win, that, that would be a weird flex. Well, we didn't win, so we're not playing anymore would be very much how it came across. And that would be bad. We have taken our ball away. Exactly, yeah. And that. And throw the game across the table. Yeah, I understand why they didn't do that. I, I can see you can get into a weird loop, though. You might get into a weird loop where something wins and recuses itself. You know, thing A wins, recuses themselves for a year. Thing B wins, recuses themselves for a year. Thing A wins again, you know. I believe this is how boxing championships work. That is out of left field. There's a lot of them because essentially they, they carve it up a little bit so that every so they have six different world champions. It's okay. There's also a thing going on where people who maybe don't have the chops self-promote very aggressively and even having said that I think self-promotion is quite good and useful and eligibility posts are quite good and useful it's possible to overdo that quite a lot sometimes and people should watch out for it. Yeah one thing I actually like is when I see someone I know on my Twitter feed retweet someone else's eligibility post because presumably they mean I think this is a thing a wider audience should see and so that kind of gives it a layer of extra not only does the person who wrote this say, yeah, it's eligible, I'd love it if you would vote for it, but someone else also thinks it's great and you should you should look into it. So that's pretty nice. That may be implicit. So, of course, one form of self-promotion that isn't self-promotion at all is um, the fan funds, where what you do is you run for a fan fund, but you get a slate of nominators um, before you run for your fan fund. In fact, in many cases, as in this one, your nominators may have pressed you to run. And then your nominators go around saying that you are an excellent person who should win the fan fund. And in this case, I want to say a little bit about Anders Holmstrom, who is running for TAF this year. There are four candidates for TAF and they're all great, but I am one of Anders' nominators and I think you should all vote for him. And I kind of struggled with this a bit because I kind of spent a little while going, well, why should everyone vote for Anders? It's because he's a great bloke, isn't it? And that's not, you can see that might not be enough to sway your, your voting. But in fact, he is an extremely interesting and gregarious chap who just makes friends very easily all over the world wherever he goes. Um, and that is a reason why, as a representative for fandom, he obviously does a ton of actual fanac in Sweden, um, none of which I've personally experienced because I've never been to Sweden. But wherever he goes, he makes friends with everybody and gets to know lots and lots of different people. And he would be a marvellous ambassador for European fandom in that sense. And that's really what fandom, what TAF is all about. So, you know, if you're in North America, please vote for him. And if you're in the UK or Europe, please vote for him. And yeah, everyone, please vote for Anders for TAF. That's not self-promotion, that's Anders promotion. Anders will be a very good TAF winner should he win. Um, but I am casting my first preference vote for Fia Carlson who will introduce the entire of North America to dill chips. This is not wrong. So, North Americans, which is more important to you, dill chips or beer? Why not both? I mean, you know, I don't know what happens in the TAF rules if there is a straight tie. 
I assume you flip a coin, but I, I admit I don't know. I could look. I could look it up, but someone should write a lock instead, so I'm not going to. Octothorpe listeners, we wonder what happens if there is a straight tie. No, actually, sorry. Th- no, there's a better way of doing this. If there's a straight tie in the TAF contest, what happens is each of the two people who have tied chooses a five-person football team and a football match is played in the gardens of the Hilton Metropole at Birmingham. And that is how it's decided. That is fact. And you would have to write in to dissuade me that it wasn't. On the subject of promoting selves who are not us... Professor Esther McCallum-Stewart is having her inaugural professorial lecture at the University of Staffordshire, and that lecture is on Dungeons & Dragons at 50. And it is being streamed online, and you can get tickets for free. Um, It is the same day that I'm going to go and see the Book of Mormon, allegedly, in a theatre, although I don't know whether that will be postponed again. But I will be there with the bells on. I'm very excited. I'm going to be listening to Esther's thing. You'll probably be able to tune in afterwards to her talk. So if you can imagine me when I was 10, which is quite a long time ago, and I had just learnt of the existence of a new game called Dungeons and Dragons, and it was in a magazine, so I didn't actually get to play it with anyone. I was just very excited about it. But if you imagine that somebody had handed me a science fiction book, which opened up with... Ah... I, I I was a student and I was late for my lecture. I logged into the computer and there on the video screen in front of me appeared the pink-haired frame of my video game professor of video games, Dr. Esther McCallan Stewart. She said, "Right, I hope you've all been studying hard because this is the lecture on Dungeons and Dragons." <laughs> That would have provided every bit of future sense of wonder I could ever have possibly imagined. Whenever anyone's like, we don't live in a good enough future, I, I just want to just want to point them to the fact that we have a professor and professorial inaugural lecture online on Dungeons and Dragons at 50. And I am very excited by a female professor of gaming. And that is just like unbelievably wonderful. So, um... Uh, yeah, in her spare time, she she is also the bid chair of Glasgow 2024. Hi, guys. And there is a link in the show notes. It's at 6pm on the 28th of February 2022. So it will be late Gosh, for Liz. Wow, oh Gosh, wow. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Did I not say that bit? I mean, you can watch my inaugural doctoral lecture online, but it is not about Dungeons and Dragons. So it is less <laughs> exciting. When you do your inaugural professorial lecture online, I will come and watch it. But I might play Hearthstone at the same time. That is fair. We are on the BSFA long list. And so that means at least one person has nominated us for the best non-fiction thing at the BSFA Awards. So thank you very much to whoever that person or persons were. And yeah, BSFA members uh, are now able to vote for the things that um, they want to be on the shortlist. And then the shortlist will be voted on at EasterCon and EasterCon and BSFA members can vote on those awards there and they are presented at EasterCon. so um yes if you're a bsfa member you should go and vote uh you shouldn't necessarily vote for us but you should definitely vote for things thank you to our fan thank you to whoever thought that octothought was non-fiction <laughs> when as we've established i'm a novel your novel eh, not really i'm another white bloke doing a podcast <laughs> how novel can i be i'll give myself a two out of ten
Right. So one of the things that happened in the real news this week is um, the Vimes Boots Index. And I wanted to talk a little bit about it because it is relevant to, I guess, science fiction being relevant, which is that Jack Monroe, who is a poverty campaigner here, observed that poor people are paying more for stuff than everybody else. And the poorer you are, the more of your money you pay for stuff that you have to have necessities. And the more, the faster the cost of those necessities is currently rising in the UK. And, and um, spoiler, it's about to get a great deal worse over the next few months. Um, and that this was affecting poor people much more than rich people and that the current price indexes used in the United Kingdom do not properly reflect that. And it, our Office of National Statistics said, yeah, they're right, that's the case. And Jack said, I am going to start a new index that will more accurately reflect what real people are paying for food so that we know how much these prices are rising in a time when they're about to rise a lot. And I want to call it the Vimes Boots Index after Terry Pratchett's observation that if you're poor, you can't afford to buy boots that will last any amount of time. Whereas if you're rich, you could buy boots that will last much longer. This applies to many things, not just boots. And the Pratchett estate said, yep, we're very happy with that. Off you go. So that's what it's going to be called. And well done, Sir Terry, for accurately identifying this in a way that really resonates with a lot of people. It's not a new observation, but I think he made it a lot clearer. And well done, Jack Monroe, for highlighting this problem in UK society. And boo to the government. Can I say that? Boo to inequality. And I think I'm very much on the um, side of the Vimes Boots Index that benefits rather than doesn't. And so I think it is good that people are drawing attention to this. I'm glad that people are talking about the cost of living as it pertains to the people for whom it really matters, which are the people who don't have a lot of money and can't really afford stuff. Yep. Uh, And then shall we do picks? Remember that self-promotion thing? At the beginning of this year, I said on Facebook, tell me about a good book that was published in 2021. And lots of people gave me suggestions, which I am now trying to get hold of copies of without buying because I am a cheapskate. And one of the ones that was suggested was that Graham Slight said, oh, there's a kind of very big and grand SF novel called The Actual Star by Monica Byrne. And it's great. And this is, and you, you will like it. And um, I went I said, oh, I looked it up and I thought, oh, that sounds like exactly my sort of thing. And I looked at my library and it said, you will get it in approximately 24 weeks, which is after the Hugo nominations close. And then um, there was a tweet, which we will link to in the show notes from Monica saying, if you're a Hugo voter and you would like to read my book, please get in touch. So she sent me a copy. So I've now read it and it's fantastic. It is a magnificent book really really enjoyed it i'll say a tiny bit about it which is it is three linked stories one of which is a historical novel um with totally imaginary characters rather than a historical novel about real characters set a thousand years ago in um mayan civilization um which is now in belize and um a strand that is set is a contemporary novel about somebody who travels to the same location and a set that is set and a novel that is set a thousand years in the future um, 
in a new utopian society where nobody stays or very few people stay anywhere very much, but people travel around a lot and come together temporarily and it's a very interesting society. So you've kind of got, she intended to do it as a three novel series, but was persuaded, I think, entirely correctly to intertwine all of these novels. And there are many um points of commonality between the three stories and it's all comes together in an ending which I think she more or less lands um obviously the problem with these are hugely ambitious novels is it's quite hard to land the ending I've got a couple of it has a trigger warning for cutting for self-harm at the front of the book so there is that because it's actual ritual cutting as part of the um societies and there is there is not, but might also be trigger warnings for a whole host of other um, fairly extraordinary scenes. There's quite a lot of a lot of the thing this novel is doing is making you think, feel different things, and and it does that quite well with some quite shocking scenes. Um, it is quite hard to read. One of the things that people come up with is they say, "Oh, this is more like literary fiction than most SF," and it, and it definitely is. So it's kind of got the those literary fiction books which people say, oh, these are really, really good, but the actual science fiction bits of it are a bit rubbish. It doesn't have that. The actual science fiction bit of it is solid. Um, really enjoyed it. Um, I, it'll be on my ballot unless I read five better 2021 novels. So well done, Monica, for self-promoting at exactly the right time. Your description your description is interesting because it, it sounds quite a lot like Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, which I hugely enjoyed. So I'm looking forward to reading The Actual Star. But that is also an SF nor work and is also literary. So it kind of has a lot of those same hallmarks. So like I, I really loved Cloud Atlas. So I am I am excited to read The Actual Star. And I also have my copy from uh, Monica. And as I say, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I would say that the author it totally reminded me of was because it, as well as having the sense of ritual place, it also has some ritual objects and it reminded me of Alan Garner's work in terms of evoking that sense of place through history, which is something that I'm very interested in. Um, on the subject of books that stick the landing, my pick for this episode is Leviathan Falls by James S.A. Corey. This is the ninth book in the Expanse series, and I really, really liked it. I thought it did a fantastic job of wrapping all of the different plot strands up. There is one more book in the series to come, but that's like a compilation of all of the short fiction that they've written in the universe, uh, so I will be picking that up at some point. The one thing I found really interesting is how the end of the nine book arc is very different to the end of the tv series which ends at the end of book six and it makes sense because the tv series ends very much in the same way as book six but book nine kind of does a lot to kind of manipulate that ending and kind of i don't know i don't know whether it subverts it necessarily but like i really found it interesting comparing and contrasting the two given that i kind of experienced the two endings very close together but yeah, I really enjoyed it. Well worth well worth reading the nine books. And um, and yeah, I am glad that they managed to kind of get to the end and, and, and bring it to a close. You know, it's not often that you read a nine book uh, series and it actually ends without like the authors dying and need to employ Brandon Sanderson. So uh, 10 out of 10 for that. 
It's that three episodes in a row that we've had the expanse as one of the picks. Can we carry on for managing to bring it up every couple of weeks for the rest of the year? Because that will be quite funny. Well, I've got another uh, seven wait. books to read and you've got another like 150 episodes. So maybe? More like 50, I think, Liz. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a sixth of the way through it. So. so maybe not. Has The Expanse had the best series, Hugo? Yeah, The Expanse won best series two years ago i think which i think was richly deserved and um exactly the sort of thing that that award uh should be being awarded to does that mean it's out of the running forever yeah you can't it, things can only win best series once so if it loo if it had lost it would come back into play but because it won it's not in play because otherwise miles borkosikin would just win best series for the rest of time uh, she's not writing them at that great speed anymore though i mean she's only written like but she did win both of the first two best series Hugos. So, like, I do think even at the reduced pace, uh, it might still happen. She could have just alternated Vorkosigan and Chalian. Yeah. So I quite like that they built in the recusements basically in the in the category definition. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's not, it wouldn't be eligible again yet. It's not reached that point. So it would be a good few years. Uh, so my pick is a novella by Adrian Tchaikovsky called Elder Race, which basically has a really neat central gimmick, premise. Anyway, what's going on is that you get the first chapter of this novella, which is the fourth daughter of the queen and the demon is terrorising the land and she must go and see the sorcerer who lives the, in the tower on the hill to get him to help save her peoples. And then the next chapter we get is from the perspective of the sorcerer who lives on the hill, who is in fact an anthropologist from a, a technologically advanced civilization who is here to research uh, these people. So they're all from Earth, but, you know, it's one of these, like, it's a colony and it has been lost and over the years it has become, you know, technologically less advanced and he has come to uh, study them. And it basically goes through this fantasy princess and the anthropologist slash sorcerer going off to find the demon and essentially the anthropologist's decision of, like, how much can I remain objective here? How much should I try and stick to my mission of not interfering and just observing? Or how much have I already become, you know, entangled with this civilization? And the right thing to do now is to is to aid them uh, in this. And that's basically the, the plot of the novella. So the chapters alternate for a while until they become, you know, they stop alternating because we've kind of got to a point where they're they're more entwined. And he's decided, you know, he's going to take more of a role, and he is actually going to go on this quest and try and, you know, tell them what's going on. And it follows things like, you know, he's tried to tell them what the situation is, but because nothing he says about, like, science and technology translates, they still think he's a wizard with magic powers. It's also got this interesting thing where our, you know, anthropologist protagonist is extremely depressed and has a lot of problems with depression, especially as uh, he's had no contact from his homeworld for a long time and, and is alone. But he has a technological device which allows him to put off feeling these emotions for a time and then at some point he has to choose when to turn this off and like feel all this crushing depression um but let's kind of turn them off so he can function and it, it's a, an interesting portrayal of you know his uh you know mental illness and how this is also perceived by the this civilization which really can't conceive of an idea that he has something in his head where he can kind of delay feeling these emotions and his you know feelings around having this and his feelings around his mental illness and it's, it adds a kind of extra dimension that i like so it's pretty good it's 2021 so i guess it is eligible for hugo although the fact that adrian tchaikovsky wrote three novellas last year might might mean he sort of 
split his vote. Yeah. I will say, I will say, so Adrian Tchaikovsky is like amazing. I've liked everything I've read of his. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I've read loads, but like I've liked everything I have. He's won the Clark Award twice. Once. Once, I think. Children of time. But he doesn't seem to get much of a look in at the Hugos, and I don't really know why, because he is amazing, and he should, more people should vote for him. And I guess maybe he's just appealing too much to the British market and not enough overseas, I don't know. But I would highly recommend people go and look his stuff up, because he is great. Well, if we were to read all three of the (laughs) 2021 Tchaikovsky novellas, we could have an argument about which one people should put on their Hugo nomination. But I feel like Tchaikovsky is under under-recognised at this point. He, he has not been sufficiently award-shaped. I think that is true. I, I think I would agree with that. I, yeah, I think I like this because, you know, I've read, you know, I've read some of his Empire and Black and Gold series. I've read, you know, Children of Time and, and Children of Earth. And this feels like, again, it's kind of another departure from those. He's not writing the same work over and over again. He's really writing kind of completely different things at, at novella length and at giant novel length, which I find... Uh, really interesting maybe it's not the best way to grow your readership if you kind of write something different every every time you write a work uh but i i enjoyed this one i think you mean children of ruin not children of earth but yes oh children of earth is torture isn't it so shards of earth which is tchaikovsky's 2021 novel is on my hold list from the library with a 21 24 week wait so adrian if you're listening to this (laughs) And you'd like me to read your novel before nomination times. Don't send me it. Get the London Libraries Consortium to buy a load more e-books of it. And then lots of people can read it, not just me. There was one more thing I was going to say on on the actual star. Um, So one of the reasons it's difficult to read is that, um, as well as English, it's got quite a lot of text in um, Spanish, of which I have absolutely none, though as a person of privilege, I have quite a bit of French, Latin, Portuguese and Italian, so I got away with it. Um, it's got quite a lot of it in a Belize Creole. And I went, I bet if I just read these words out loud, it'll be fine. And it was. Um, it's got quite a lot of stuff in a future invented language, words, terms of art in a future invented language that is based on Spanish and for which there is a glossary. I gleaned nearly all of those from context. Um, so all of this makes it a little bit tricky and a kind of it doesn't read through like an adventure novel would so so if if you like if you like science fiction that's very easy to read this one might not be for you and people do bounce off that fortunately i have quite a lot of spanish at this point so i should be all right with the spanish bits i am very glad i'm i'm still very annoyed that my school decided that french german and latin were more sensible choices than spanish which i would argue is obvious nonsense it wasn't obvious nonsense when I was in school, but it was obvious when I was in school in Texas that having Spanish was very, very useful. I, I couldn't really switch because I already had French at that point. It's clear now to me that a lot of actual creativity is happening in in the United States in Spanish. And as the US still has most of the cultural hegemony, we probably do need to be learning some Spanish in the same way that we do need to be learning some Mandarin if we want to enjoy the next 20 or 30 years. I will just say I also had like some French, but it turns out if you just keep persistently learning Spanish, all the French goes away eventually. That was the Octothought podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.
I do like a good milk stout, actually. I mean, not here, obviously. Here I drink lager with ice in it. Yeah, but, but for Easter. So whoever wants to brew us beer for EasterCon, um, I'm sure we can sell a few cans. Um, and it could be the Octothorpe milk stout. And then you could do an oat you could do an oatmeal stout called Oat to Thorpe and you could that would be good. Yes. <laughs> so your milk stout's Lactothorpe, is it? Uh no, no, no that's I I much prefer milk stouts that have milk in them or has lactose in them rather than milk stouts that don't. That's that's legit. I also, I mean, like, I don't know what other beer styles... What beer styles don't you guys like? Um, crisp Thai lager. <laughs> like wedges of lime. Though I would do if I was in Thailand in 35 degree heat. Yeah, but yeah. If I was in Thailand in 35 degree heat, I would be Googling flights to the UK. <laughs> I don't really like anything overly sour, and I'm not keen on things which are overly hoppy either. Yeah, I'm... Yeah, no, I don't like... If you put so much hops of a particular type in your beer that it tastes like toilet cleaner, then it tastes like toilet cleaner smells, because I have no idea how toilet cleaner tastes, then it's probably not for me. So I, I slightly worry about any beer with the word pine on the label. Yeah, I, 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 I am much the same uh, as my co-hosts in that I, I don't like very bitter hoppy beers very much um i do quite like incredibly sour beers though so me and liz do differ there um but yes yeah it's like i can see the kind of the the craft and the artistry of making it a good like lambic i just don't like drinking them no and, and like and i will say that like there are some beers lately that have been like double and triple ipas that i have actually quite liked so i do think like beer makers are getting better at making very hoppy beers that are not just very hoppy if that makes sense um which i am kind of enjoying it's a yeah what i just like is that i think of it as being a sort of american strand of brewing all that might be a total slight on the americans but i've definitely had it in some kind of american breweries where it's just a it just feels very bitter and not much else in there so i guess now we know what the after show is going to be right Maybe we shouldn't put that in because then all our American listeners will... No, maybe we should because then all American listeners will write into me with suggestions of beers I should drink and possibly even beers. Yes. Listeners, please write in <laughs> with a kind of beer tasting list. A stretch goal for Octothorpe for 2022 is to drink more interesting beer. And Liz will drink all of these interesting beers and she will not log any of them because she is not on untapped and you will be none the wiser, listeners. You will be in darkness and ignorance i am actually on, on I'm, i am actually on are you on untapped yeah. what shoot you're on untapped whoa hang on did i know that i think i might have known that actually the last time i used untapped is when i was sat in the brewery with you guys drinking beer i think so you didn't really need to be on untapped nailed it do you not log all of your thai la- lagers like thai lager definitely a lager liz don't drink a lot. I basically drink the same two or three, and so it wouldn't be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't tend to log like Corona uh, if I ever have a Corona, so that is fair. I don't, I don't tend to log except when Claire gives me a Paddington hard stare. <laughs> Not only is this on Untapped, but she's my friend on Untapped. So, the theme music for this episode was "Fanfare for Space" by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.